and welcome to Spooky South Coast, the podcast-only edition. Tim Weisberg here, along with Stephanie Burke, the silent assassin Matt Costa may pop in, but he's down in the other studio, right? Possibly. Working the NFL games that are keeping us off the radio. <laughs> Fantastic. So this was a, a different experience, a unique experience to, to come in here and to record. Normally, when we do you know podcast-only shows, I like do it from my house. Do you? But yeah. I do. I usually That's like record an interview over Skype, and then I make something up around it. But here we actually can come in now and use some of the equipment. We actually get to use the Fun 107 studio. I'm kind of liking this a little bit better than what we normally deal with. It, it I'm seems, not going to lie. It seems stuffier, though. Than, Think so? Than, yeah, we've been in here for a little bit now, and it feels like it feels like we're on uh, Dish Nation. <laughs> there's like cameras everywhere. Cameras that we can't use, by the way, because they, they take the cameras out of the case. Well, there's one over there in the corner. I did notice that. Right. And that's uh, the engineer is actually watching us from home right now. I'm like, sure. What the hell are they doing in Fun 107? I'm sure they enjoyed me sneezing and blowing my nose then. But I'm just waiting. Well, it's just Frank. He doesn't care. Okay. But uh, I'm just waiting for the like the text, like, what are you guys doing in there? You're not supposed to be in there. It's okay. Nancy said it was okay. Right. We got permission. We, we made sure. She actually told it, us. It took us a to long time it. to figure out their equipment, but... This is this is easy. This is you just come, you basically just come in and talk. And you know so everything's what? already ready to go. I think if we were in here the majority of the time, we probably have no technical difficulties. I'm actually uh, I'm actually going to push now to be on phone 07 more. I think we should. I think I can do it. Hold on. <laughs> <clears throat> Hold on. <clears throat> Uh-oh. Today's hit music station, Fun 107, that's I Need Your Love, featuring Ellie Golding by Calvin Harris. It's climbing up the charts. Coming up, we'll have your chance to win tickets to see Selena Gomez. Whenever. At the Seaport Inn. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Think I could do it? I think you could do it. Everybody always says, like, I'll, I'll like, pick something up and read it, like, at Thanksgiving dinner. I was like, uh, well, they actually have these, like, fancy things in here that you can actually read the right. lines off of. Have you built the most significant holiday light? I already read it wrong. <laughs> Have you built the most magnificent holiday light display ever? Well, we want to see it. We're collecting photos of the best South Coast light displays from now through December 14th. But I just feel like it's so disingenuous to talk that way. It's definitely strange, but it's a career. Yeah, I can do it. Anybody I... that wants to hire me for voiceover work, I'm available. <laughs> I work real cheap, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com. Do you do cartoons? I, I can, I'm sure. You Whatever go. you want me to do, I'll do there it. There you go. And, uh, but we are, of course, we're recording these podcast-only shows because NFL football is kicking us off the air, but that's okay, because when you get into the podcast shows, that gives you the chance to really get deeper into some of the topics that right. you, know, you might lose some of the general audience on. Absolutely. In whatever innuendos and swears that end up on the podcast, too, that... I'm, I'm not above dropping a few. <laughs> And uh, but of course we try to keep it suitable for family listening, right? <laughs> most of the time. Uh, but uh, we are, and it's not like our other podcast only shows where we're actually drinking. Oh yeah, I haven't been to one of those yet. That's oh, all that's brand coming. new to me. You'll get your chance. What is it? The backyard something or other? I've heard so much about that I've never taken part in. You guys kind of didn't do one this year. You you did a makeshift one at Jeff Belanger's birthday party. Yeah, we were gonna. Uh, you know, we were gonna wait. And not do that, but mm. you know, we, it like, happened. We're, we're like, we're, we'll wait till we can have you there for a backyard podcast. Yeah, and that yeah, cost a yeah. Bit. You know, it, it was Jeff's party, and it was his fortieth, and he came up with the idea. But so we we will do. We owe you a backyard. You podcast. You do owe me a backyard podcast. We will do one. Coming up a little bit later on in the show, we'll talk with Clarissa Vasquez. She's a paranormal investigator and an author, a good friend of the show. We will talk to her about her new book, which focuses on haunted trains and railways. Uh, but before then. We're going to talk about this story that came out in the last few days 
Uh, and of course, it's on Huffington Post. It's everywhere. And that's this tweet that the CIA put out the other day. They actually tweeted it out on December 29th. Uh, and, and I'll read the tweet verbatim. Number one, most read on our best of 2014 list, reports of unusual activities in the skies in the 1950s, question mark, it was us. And then there's a link to yes. a study, uh, a report that came out, it was released in 2013, uh, but it was actually created in 1998. And basically, the CIA is saying that the UFOs that were seen in the skies in the 50s and 60s was actually secret CIA missions, such as the U-2 spy plane. Right, which is very interesting, because the link is actually a 272-page long booklet. Which that, I know you read the entire... Oh, I definitely did, the whole entire time we were sitting here for all of 10 minutes. You even like tried to figure out who the redacted names yep, were from... Absolutely, yeah. but it's very interesting, because it's actually on the official CIA website, and the fact that they're linking to that is interesting. The whole entire thing is interesting. I think that's going to cause a little bit of controversy in the, the UFO world. What do you think? Well, it certainly will, and uh, and coming up in a minute, we'll have the reaction of Stephen Bassett. He's the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, and they've been working for a number of years now to end what they call the truth embargo, uh, the cover-up of extraterrestrial and UFO contact uh, with our government. But if you look at the story, especially the Huffington Post story uh, that comes out, they talk about how the U-2 spy plane tests, uh, while they were conducting these tests, it was unintentional that people would have UFO reports because uh, conventional aircraft at the time would fly between ten and 20,000 feet, right. and the U-2 was capable of flying in excess of 60,000 feet. So both people on the ground looking up and seeing these dots in the sky and also air traffic controllers are saying, like, we don't know what these are. Right. And it wasn't like the CIA was going to come on and say, well, we're testing our new st- spy plane. Well, I was telling you a little bit earlier, I did some... Uh a little bit of research on this because I wanted to see how much truth was behind the actual explanation. Um, and I asked a very trusted source, you know, can you see planes at 60,000 feet from the ground? And the answer was no. Um, on a clear day, maybe a teeny tiny speck or a dot. But if they are flying anywhere above the 10 to 20,000, it would seem something. Like if you're on a cross-country flight nowadays, yeah, you're probably going to reach about thirty to 35,000 yep. feet. And and even then, you can just barely see the plane. Oh, absolutely. And the U-2 spy plane, of course, being a spy plane, was mm-hmm. not designed uh, with the same physical structure as a 747. Right. I mean, who who the heck knows if it even looked like the actual plane that they're claiming it, it was. It could have been anything. So we'll never know. Well, I know that you're new to a lot of the UFO talk uh, mm, that we have here like on the aliens. show because you try to... Avoided, but <laughs> one one term that will pop up again and again is disinformation, mm-hmm. and the idea that the CIA or other governmental bodies are trying to put out uh, the idea that they're behind it as a way to get people to stop looking into it. Oh yeah, Absolutely. and I think it's interesting that the story actually came out during 2014, mm-hmm. but it only is really gaining traction right now because the CIA tweeted out about it being the most weird? viewed thing. Yeah. So, and when it actually came out. I didn't hear a lot of stuff about it. And I didn't hear about the report in 2013 when it was originally released. No, so. isn't it strange how social media changes the aspect of that whole entire thing? Especially when it's easy for the CIA to push an agenda right. on social media. So uh, why don't we get into that? And now joining us on the line, we have the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, Steve Bassett, joining us on the line. Hello, Steve. How are you? Hi, Tim. It's good to be with you. And, uh, of course, we always talk with you about all things, any type of UFO disclosure and uh, that tweet coming out by the CIA. First of all, uh, how did you find out about it when, it when it was first released? Uh, let's 
simply it turned up in my oh I turned up on Facebook turned up on my email I got plenty of uh, of contact on that uh, so I learned about it pretty quickly uh, there's a couple things about this and uh, it's I think notable first and foremost all this is is a tweet somebody somebody in the CIA tweeted um, something to the effect that the half the UFO sightings most UFO sightings going back uh, were classified surveillance planes, U2, U2-type planes, and so forth. Uh, and But it's just a tweet. That's, that's really nothing. Anybody could do that. Anyone in the CIA could throw that out. Yeah, and a lot of the times the, the, uh, the brand managers, the people who are in charge of the social media for different, whether it be a business or whether it be a governmental body, it, it seems like um, sarcasm and snarkiness are kind of commonplace with tweets. So for them to tweet out saying, it was us, you know, they're just trying to, to grab attention more well, than anything. Whoever tweeted it is saying that. Yes. There's no indication this is like a formal CIA statement. Uh, so, so the first thing that's notable about it is it's a tweet. The uh, second thing that's notable about it is, is, well, it's ridiculous. I mean, it is ridiculous. Anyone that studied this field at all knows that the, the uh, instance where I think planes or classified planes were mistaken for uh, or considered, were studied as U, 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 UFOs, legitimate UFOs, is pretty low. God, probably one-tenth of a percent would fall in that category. And as time goes by, the public became even more sophisticated, being able to sort of know, uh, have a better idea of what is truly anom- anomalous in the sky and what isn't. Uh, the percentage probably goes even lower. So that's the second thing. It's ridiculous. But the most important thing about this is that just this simple tweet referring to this subject, the amount of attention this subject on the net is so great and the awareness of people is, is so great that it immediately becomes under uh, pressure. It gets passed around. It becomes almost viral. News articles are written about it. Um, and that just gives you a sense of how um, uh, uh, explosive this issue is right now. Anything can set off a, an Internet uh, kind of storm, right? Even something as, as, as small as a tweet, a single tweet coming out of the CIA by who knows what. Uh, now, this is important, uh, and this is this is happening all over. You've got people that are all over the world that are that are they're checking every every square millimeter of cur- uh, the uh, Curiosity rover photos on Mars, looking for any anomalies, and they're finding some interesting things. Same thing with with moon moon photography. Um, uh, people are looking for anything, watching for anything. And if anything turns up, it immediately goes on the Internet. This is not good news for the truth embargo people. Um, this kind of scrutiny at this level worldwide is kind of makes it increasingly difficult to play the game they've been playing relatively successfully for 68 years that the emperor's really got a set of clothes on when, in fact, the emperor's naked. There are no ETs here when, in fact, everyone knows there are. So that's what's notable about this particular episode to me. And it seems like it's overly dismissive of the type of reports that came out in the 1950s and 60s. You know, they're trying to liken it to the U-2 spy plane testing and saying that because most commercial aircraft flew at about ten to 20,000 feet and now the U-2 is flying above 60,000 feet, so people mistook it for a UFO. Yeah, that might be fine for people that saw a little dot in the sky that they couldn't explain, but for people that had up-close 
uh, very close encounters with these ships and people who were uh, seeing, you know, very definitive uh, characteristics of these aircraft, uh, it, it shows that they're just trying to be dismissive of every report. Well, the person that made that tweet, whoever it was, uh, either doesn't know what they're talking about uh, or is having some fun. Um, and there is a possibility that it's a limited hangout. It's just like the CIA uh, says, look, let's put a tweet out there, take a little pressure off the, who knows? But we don't know, really. Again, it's, I don't, I don't tend to over, I don't, I don't over, I don't like to overreact to stuff. And, and so this is not a big deal in and of itself, but the response to it is very uh, informative. Um, the level of scrutiny on everything the government says and does whether it's Medvedev making a supposedly off-camera comment about extraterrestrial information being passed on as part of the security briefings that the president of Russia gets, anything is immediately spread around the world. This is a further indication of why the truth embargo is days are, are really numbered, and it cannot continue much longer, and we hope to end this truth embargo this year if we can. I mean, if this had been, you know, if it had been like the Huffington Post putting out the story, uh, which, you know, they, they do have a story about it, but if they had been the ones that were sending up this initial tweet, it's what we call clickbait. It's just trying to get people to click on it and go to your website. But whereas this is linking to a 1998 report that was declassified in 2013, this is more, uh, in my eyes, it's, it's less clickbait and more just continuing that campaign of disinformation. Well, the idea that, uh, this idea that, uh, secret airplanes uh, are a mistake for UFOs. It's been around a long time. Mm-hmm. Nothing new about it. Uh, it's been referred from time to time. I, uh, if I'm the if I'm the government, and I want to to try to sort of just pull the reins in a little bit on the public's engagement of the issue, I might toss something like that out once in a while. It 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 sort of does that. Of course, it doesn't account for the. The sightings that are not their aircraft. They're saying fifty percent of all UFOs are are our planes. Well, what about the other fifty percent? You know, so they're kind of acknowledging there's a lot of unknown things that are being seen in the sky. Of course, we don't deal in unidentified flying objects anymore. I don't care about them. I'm only interested in the extraterrestrial craft, uh, which have now been established beyond any reasonable doubt that are in fact engaging us in our airspace and the ETs that are in them. So we're way past that. So this is kind of a of an anachronism in a sense. It's just a little thing. Um, and by and large, if you read the comments, so the, and, and again, the press has picked this up. There's been a number of articles written on it. You can easily find them, and, he, and a lot of them have comments, and when you go and read the comments, you will find that a significant portion of the comments basically are saying, this is ridiculous. And again, that is another indication that we are advancing very quickly toward the end of the game that's been played, which is uh, the embargoing of the acknowledgement of the CT reality and finally accepting it as, as, as fact um, by the major authorities. And, uh, and coming up here, uh, we're entering 2015 now, and what's coming up on the calendar uh, for yourself and for PRG? Oh, a lot. Um, we will, um, and I've been sending material out, we will launch a sixth disclosure petition on the 7th of January. Uh, we submit it to the White House, and people can start signing it on the 7th. Um, of January. We'll have 30 days. It'll be up for at least 30 days. This, this is, uh, and the home base for this petition is disclosurepetition.org. Uh, this petition is part of the full citizen congressional hearing campaign that's underway. This petition basically calls for the president to support the convening of 
meeting convening of, of congressional hearings for the witnesses ready to testify. And we'll get it up there for 30 days. It needs 100,000 signatures to get response from the White House. It's very difficult to do. But we'll, we'll get a fair share of signatures and we'll get the exposure. That gets launched on the 7th. I'm actually starting to call congressional offices now. I hope to be meeting with staffers in these offices throughout the rest of this month. And we're going to be working towards trying to get one of the committees on the Hill to agree to a full-out hearings, of, you know, between 20 and 30 witnesses, high-ranking station, military, agency, political. If we can get the commitment by a committee to do that, either leading into that hearing or subsequent to that hearing, probably the truth embargo will collapse. I mean, that will pretty much be the ballgame. So we're in the final phases of what might be the end of this 68-year game that's been played, and uh, it can't happen soon enough. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, and definitely keep us up to date with everything going on this year. Yeah, citizenhearing.org, for those that want to keep on top of what's going on here. And um, uh, we want people to participate, too, and they can find out how to do that when they go to these sites. Excellent. Thank you so much, and you have a happy New Year, Steve. You too. All right, take care. Well, joining us now on the line, we have uh, a good friend of the show. She's been on the program with us many times over the years. Uh, she comes to us from Colorado, but she's comes to New England uh, quite frequently, and she's got quite a network of people here that she hangs out and investigates with. And we want to welcome back to the show Clarissa Vasquez. Hello. Thank you, Clarissa, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me back, guys. And you were just recently out this way, weren't you? Um, I was out there. I spent the majority of the summer out there. And you never came so by WBSM. My son and I. <laughs> we were here every Saturday night. You never came by and knocked on the window or anything. Well, you know, when you're as popular as I am, your Saturday night's book <laughs> pretty quick. Oh, understandable. Uh, definitely. And, yeah, I mean, it, you've, like I said, you have quite a group of friends out here, and, and you know people that, you know, you know Doug, who I've known since I was in uh, in middle school. Yeah. Yeah, my brother Doug. He's actually my co-host now, my permanent co-host now on my radio show on Periscope. That was pretty. I mean, this is a kid, Stephanie. That you know, when we were when we were younger, we mm-hmm. both were new to the town, and we we became friends in homeroom of eighth grade. And that's funny. Uh, years later, it turns out we're both in the same field. He had moved away, but got into it, and then mm-hmm. he came back. And it's just weird how we have those connections across our lives, and it brings people together. And of course, you know, I say that that I knew Doug, but I actually met Clarissa through Chris Balzano, so it's That's so strange. You know, one big weird network of people. We, we, all of us weirdos stick together. <laughs> it's magnetic or something. Yeah, I think so. I think I think what it is is we're the only ones that get each other. So we're kind of That's very true. We're forced to hang out together yeah. even if we didn't want to. Telling people that you believe in ghosts and you talk to them in the middle of the night in the dark doesn't really sit well <laughs> unless you really do it yourself. That's true. So your new book, uh, of course, you've uh, you've written uh, quite a few, but the latest one is Phantom Trains and Haunted Rails of the U.S., and this is something that I've always been fascinated with, even aside from the ghost aspect of it. I've always been interested in trains, and it's something that is, you know, it, it's becoming more a part of our history than it is a part of our, our modern society, and I think that really lends itself to becoming part of the paranormal conversation. Yeah, I agree. And believe it or not, Doug was one of the people that inspired me to write that book. Oh, yeah. He's, he's been a train um, fan for as long as Yes. He's a huge rail fan, as is my son. And, you know, both of them have this massive passion for trains. They both have this massive passion for ghosts. And I wanted to find a book about haunted rails or phantom trains that, to give to them for Christmas. And I couldn't find anything 
that wasn't fiction that met my criteria. And I felt, you know, deflated and defeated for like a day, going, man, I had this great Christmas idea, and now I can't do it. And about 24 hours later, I went, well, you're stupid. Why don't you write the book? (laughs) So I did. I did a whole bunch of research and um, spent the better part of a year on it. And if that tells you anything about how far in advance I start to do my Christmas shopping. But uh, I did, you know, I did a whole bunch of research, um, got to visit some of these great locations that I wrote about, and, you know, the result is this amazing book that covers 20, like 20 states, like 36 locations in 20 states, if I remember correctly. Well, and the fact that there's, you know, that many stories that are that are out there is... Uh... Pretty impressive because we've we've heard a lot of stories and we've talked with you in the past, of course, about the redheaded hitchhiker and some of these other legends. Yeah. And I know that you're somebody that collects a lot of these urban legends, so you've got to make the determination between whether or not it's an actual ghost story that people have had experiences with, or whether it's just another urban legend that's popped up around a train yard. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of urban legend in the book. You know, a lot of. The, you know, this is what is reported to happen. This is what is reported to have caused it. Um, I did include the ghost train of Chicago from a few years back that was actually determined to be human error. But it had the entire paranormal community in a buzz mm-hmm. you know, a couple of years ago because this, this train in Chicago um, actually maneuvered on its own, switched tracks, and collided into another train. And there was no one at the controls, and they were checking all the CCTV cameras and, you know, going, you know, who was at the controls, how did it switch tracks, and and things of that nature. And it was actually determined to be human error, but because it had the paranormal community, you know, all stirred up for quite a while, uh, I went ahead and included it in the book and said, look, you know, this is this is what was reported and this is what was found. So it's actually a ghost story that was debunked, but it still made it into the book. Well, but that's, you know, one of my favorite quotes, and I, I use it all the time on the show, is it comes from the movie uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And that's when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And that seems to be the case with a lot of these stories is, you know, the, they, they might just be a legend. They might just be, you know, a new mythology, but we work it into it because it's it's who we are as people. And it's, uh, you know, telling stories is who we are and what we do. So if there is, if it turns out that there isn't any truth, the truth ends up becoming the uh, proliferation of the story. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, as with any legend or ghost lore, you know the the facts get manipulated and twisted, and and they morph into completely different realities. Eventually, you know, as time goes on and as they're passed down from person to person to person, things get omitted or things get added. And so, you know, when you go back and start researching some of these things and and start uncovering the earliest versions of these stories. You know, then you really have a, you know, you've got a really good look at how these things have have uh, grown or been manipulated over the years. And some of these stories go back, you know, to very, very early times, you know, before the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, you know, before the, you know, the mass usage of locomotives and trains. And uh, so it was. It was really cool to take a step back in time and look in into the history, not only of the ghosts and the and the stories, but also the history of trains and the locomotive as well. 
I mean, I suppose that part of it is uh, that a lot of people who are, you know, coming up now, especially in the world of people that are interested in ghosts and ghost stories, you know, train travel, uh, rail travel isn't something that is as predominant as it once was. And even if you are, you're riding one of these high-speed Amtraks, and it's not the same experience. So for a lot of people, trains have a mystery about them naturally, and they have a romanticism about them naturally that can help lend itself to, uh, you know, good stories of the supernatural, too. Oh, absolutely. You'll see even on uh, mainstream television, uh, occasionally somebody will write a train, you know, into one of their script, and people will be riding on the train, and all of a sudden they enter a tunnel. You know, and everything goes dark, and, you know, there's that great mystery and suspense, and, you know, is everybody going to be there when the lights come back on, and, and things like that. And so... You know, trains are still, they're still fascinating. I don't have the same passion for them that, that my, my brother Doug and my son Jacob have. I don't have that same passion. I can appreciate them. But I, you know, standing on the side of the tracks, you know, for hours or days, as Doug has been known to do, you know, just watching trains, <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd rather go look for ghosts. <laughs> but when you find them and the associated with these, I mean, there are a lot of common themes in some of these uh, ghost train, ghostly train stories? Are there a lot of, you know, similar uh, tropes to a lot of these stories? There are a lot of similarities, uh, particularly in the haunted rails sec- uh, stories. You know, the phantom trains where, you know, there's where there are actual ghosts on the trains, not so much, but the ones where the tracks are haunted or there are phantom trains that pass by on this Particular section of tracks. Um, a lot of those center around either suicide by train or catastrophic locomotive accidents. Were there any? That... So a lot of lot of geographic psychic trauma and uh, a lot of residual stories. Uh, were you able to? You know, did you uh, dig into the? Did the investigator in you, aside from the author in you, did the investigator in you dig into these stories to find out if there was historical context? For these stories, or did you kind of just accept them at face value as being, you know, a good ghost story, whether it's true or not? No, I actually did the digging. And with some locations, I was able to dig up a lot. With other locations, I wasn't able to dig up much. Um, one case in particular, the one of the, the haunted tracks in San Antonio, Texas, where, you know, people put their vehicle in neutral and the vehicle rolls uphill and across the tracks and either the dust on the back bumper or some some people even go so far as to powder the back bumper of their car, it appears that there are uh, fingerprints in the dust or in the baby powder or flour or whatever they put on the back of the car, supposedly from children pushing the train or pushing the car across the tracks to avoid an oncoming train. Now, I know that at least one television program has covered this location, and they now they determined the same thing that I did. Really, the the grade of the hill, the car is actually traveling downhill. It's not. It appears to be traveling uphill, but that's an optical illusion uh, based on the surrounding uh, topography and the the trees and the the other flora and fauna in the area. Uh, it's an optical illusion that makes it look like the vehicle is going upwards. It's actually going downwards. And that the fingerprints that are appearing in the dust or powder on the back of the car 
uh, our residual oil from, you know, the last person that touched the car. It's actually human. Um, there are the story says that there was a uh, school bus accident that a school bus full of children was hit by a train at that intersection. Um, there are absolutely zero reports of a vehicle versus train accident of any kind anywhere near that area. Hmm. Well, it's, so, it's, you know, it's it's one of those things where optical illusion and ghost lore has morphed into, you know, a huge spectator location. See, I wish I had actually known that you were working on the book, and, and shame on me, because you probably were looking for stories and I, I missed out on it, but the when Chris and I worked on Haunted Objects together, uh, for that book, we I actually took into my home a haunted doll, and that doll was actually supposedly from a train accident that happened in Georgia many years ago, and this doll was found after the accident, and somebody took it into their home, and their home was severely haunted by the doll, and then they gave the doll away to a young girl who had to grow up with the doll, and the same thing happened. And, and you see a lot of uh, these type of stories where... Uh, the train itself might not be what's haunted or, or where the ghost story uh, f- is fixated on, but it is usually it can be the origin point for a lot of these stories. There can be, you know, there was a terrible train crash, and then, you know, something happens as a result. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the book primarily focuses on, you know, the train tracks or the trains themselves, mostly the tracks. Uh, there are... A lot of stories of locations, you know, where there either are existing tracks or there used to be tracks in the area, and people still hear, you know, the trains going by where there are no tracks anymore. They still see trains going by where there are no tracks anymore. Um, or people, there's one location where people, you know, flock every year because the uh, residual energy from a train that crashed in that area. Um, tends to repeat itself. Uh, and, of course, I covered the case in North Carolina uh, near the town of Mako, I think it is, and where investigators were actually killed by an actual train. They were trying to, they were trying to witness the ghost train that passes along this one trestle uh, during a specific time of year, and... They were on the tracks, and a train was coming. They thought it was the ghost train. It was a real train, and uh, a few investigators were struck and killed. That was uh, that was big news a few years ago. And also here in Massachusetts, you know, we have the, uh, the Hoosjack Tunnel, where people will go there mm-hmm. because they've heard all the stories that are associated with it, and they'll go inside, not realizing that it's still an active train line, and when you get in there and there's a train coming, there's no way to get out. Yeah, absolutely. And... Um, there are several tunnel stories uh, of that nature. You know, people go in and, you know, not realizing that it's active lines, and they find themselves in trouble, and they either, you know, get struck and injured or killed, or they wind up with a really scary near miss. And what people don't realize is that the majority of railroad tracks are private property. They are owned by the railroads, and trespassing on those tracks can result in hefty fines or jail time. Yeah, they don't mess around when it comes to that stuff, especially with the Hoosjack, the the, uh, the train company that owns it now, the railroad that owns it now, they prosecute to the fullest extent of the law. So anybody that sneaks in there, and I know people still have, 
but it's still a, it's a huge risk to take. Uh, and you do cover, there is a Massachusetts story in the book. I don't know how much you remember off the top of your head about the uh, Pittsfield story, but uh, I'm interested in finding out what Bridge Lunch is all about. You know, Bridge Lunch was actually fun to do, and I wanted to get more information on it. Um, I wanted to find out what is there now, and I just wasn't able to, you know, find the information that I needed uh, in time to meet my deadline. Um, of course, later on, if I do find out more information, you know, I it'll go into a second edition, obviously. But, uh, you know, Bridge Lunch is one of those locations where, you know, several people witnessed a train that was not of the of the time period. It was a steam locomotive, uh, and I believe it appeared. I believe they said it was narrow gauge, and you know, certainly narrow gauge was not being run in that area at that time. Um, narrow gauge was um, all but eliminated as it is now, and diesel locomotives are are prominent now, diesel and electric. And at the time, it appeared, you know, it was a steam locomotive with uh, a couple of passenger cars. And uh, several people witnessed it on more than one occasion. And nobody could make heads or tails of it. People, you know, were calling the authorities, you know, going, wow, you know, that that steam locomotive was really cool, but it was traveling at a high rate of speed, you know, know, in in this residential area. And um, the authorities are going, yeah, there was no train in this area. So, uh, and it, it hasn't been seen for some time. So, again, you know, just like with any other haunting or residual haunting, you know, we don't exactly know what makes them come and go. We don't know the circumstances surrounding them. But the bridge lunch was one of those, you know, several people saw it and reported it on more than one occasion. And and so uh, it, it made for a... For a good story to put in the book. I mean, that's what I love about it is that when you have a, a story like that, that you know, some of these tales probably wouldn't have been, wouldn't have carried on if it wasn't for you collecting them and putting them in the book. Because it's just, I guess, for a lot of investigators, you know, haunted trains and haunted railways just aren't as sexy as some of the other ghost <laughs> stories that are out there. Because you know, it's not something that lends itself to you know, no, nobody's making a TV show of people that are going out and investigating uh, haunted railroads. So. It doesn't seem to have the same appeal as going to a, a house where there was a murder or going to, you know, a, a business that was built on the site of an Indian burial ground. It just doesn't have that same uh, appeal. But to me, it's just so much more of a, and I'll use that word again, you know, it's more of a romantic draw because of the place that trains play in our history. Well, it's a huge piece of history, and I think it's important to include, but it's not commercialized anymore. Right. And the fact that, you know, I think a lot of people just don't understand about, right. about trains anymore. Most I've, kids have probably never been on a train either. That's true. Well, maybe they've gone like to like the zoo and ridden like the little kids train. Right. So they really don't have anything to do with trains. They don't really know. Just like they'll never know what a typewriter is. And it must drive Doug crazy, you know, being a rail fan to to see that the younger generation isn't involved. I'm glad, Clarissa, that your son is interested in in keeping trains alive for for the younger folks. Oh yeah. Well, and you know, Jacob has always. Since he was little, he has always loved trains. And then when Uncle Doug exposed him to rail fanning, you know, <laughs> oh, my gosh, things exploded. Um, you know, he he either asks for, you know, a rail fanning trip or ghost hunting equipment for his birthday, you know, or for Christmas or, or what have you. So he, um, 
you know, my son is definitely the the next generation of rail fan, and I have Doug to thank and Strangle for that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when I was writing the book, I was really surprised to find out that there wasn't already a book about this. Uh, you know, with so many stories that are out there, you know, again, I've got 36 locations in 20 different states, and I only covered the U.S. The U.S. has more of these reports than anywhere else in the world. Uh, there are a few in South America, and there are several in Europe. But the U.S. is number one for phantom train stories. And there are several in Canada as well, but I didn't cover Canada. I just covered the United States. That's okay. You can say it. You hate Canadians. No, I really don't. I <laughs> I'm her just kidding. In Canada and got, and got her, got her, she didn't get her citizenship. She got her residency. So, you know, I kind of, kind of have to love at least two Canadians, my sister and brother-in-law. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, with all of the ghost books that are on the market, I was really surprised that this topic hadn't been covered yet. And so, you know, kudos to me for capitalizing on that, but, you know, it was it was still a shock for you know, to find that you know with all of the different ghost subjects that have been covered throughout the years that this one hadn't been tackled yet. I think it's a really cool idea. Thanks. <laughs> I'm kind of fond of it myself. I mean, growing up, you know, you knew about. Well, I played with train sets, like major train sets, and different things mm-hmm. like that. So. Nobody knows about that stuff anymore, and I've always been fascinated by the train track uh, stories. Or I remember um, my family owned a travel agency, so um, my grandfather, and my father would travel all over the U.S. Um, way back when it was just bus tours and um, do things like that with people that were touring and traveling, and they would come back with a lot of ghost stories. And one of them was on a train track and I was always fascinated with different stories like that, especially the train tracks and staying at places where there were train tracks. I always wonder if there's a ghost or, you know, it was kind of associated with it, especially in like old movies and stuff like that. So I'm surprised that nobody did it, but that's great that you, you did write it. Yeah. Well, and I had, I actually had the privilege after I wrote the book and after it was published, it was actually a week after it hit the shelf. I had the privilege of going and seeing the Reno which is the old steam locomotive uh, that is the most filmed and photographed train in the, or locomotive in the world. Wow. Uh, it's the one that Hollywood uses every time they need a steam locomotive. It was in uh, Tombstone and uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral, and I think it was, it was even in The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, like Tim mentioned earlier. Uh, and I actually had the privilege of going and seeing that locomotive and taking some photos of it. Uh, and so, you know, with with as much history as that one piece of equipment had, you know, it makes makes me kind of wonder, you know, if there's anything residual attached to that, or, you know, what what could be, you know, lingering on that train, having been used as a legitimate train for so long, and then used as a Hollywood prop afterwards. You well, know, it absolutely. just kind of makes you wonder what's what's attached to it. And, you know, History of America, there was so much that went into railroads and trains, and it was pretty much the means of transportation for everybody. And, you know, the sweat, the blood, the tears that went into stuff like that, you have to imagine that there's at least residual energy, if not hauntings. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and again, the the one thing that I did learn through most of this 
it's through most of the research, is that the majority of the reports uh, appear to be residual in nature. It's very interesting. You know, as a result, uh, as a result of geographic psychic trauma, you know, some sort mm-hmm. of, of accident, you know, whether it, the train derailed for whatever reason, or there was a vehicle versus train, or suicide by train, uh, and there are there are some really hair raising and crazy stories. Do you have a favorite in that book? Oh gosh, well, <laughs> they're all my favorite. Um, You know, the one, I, I guess the one in near Wilcox, Arizona, mm-hmm. would have to be my favorite. Uh, and this one, there is a, a prospector out in the desert. He's about to die. You know, his, his donkey has already died from, from the heat and dehydration. He's about to die, and he's out in the desert. There's no civilization, no roads, nothing. And out of nowhere, this train appears, and wow. the conductor... The, the conductor and engineer detrain, you know, and pick him up and put him on the train. He actually wakes up later uh, to discover that he's in the town of Wilcox, Arizona, and the train lines hadn't come into Wilcox as of yet. They didn't. The actual train lines didn't go into Wilcox for a couple of years after that took place, uh, and. People still to this day report that if you're if you're in the desert, you know near Wilcox, Arizona, just north of the Dragoon Mountains, out there in the flats, uh, you know if you're if you're out there, you know right time of day in the right spot, you know you can still hear that train whistle blowing. That's so, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love stories like that. I love when you know it can it can. The story can also, at the same time, get you back to the roots of why you got involved in this topic to begin with, why these stories appeal to you in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was refreshing, you know, as an investigator. You're not, you know, you're not just researching, you know, someone's home or, you know, researching, you know, the local ghost floor. Or for me, I've been doing Phantom Hitchhikers for so long. Um, I, I hate to say it, it's almost boring now. <laughs> but almost, <laughs> almost, not quite. Uh, but as, you know, Tim and I have talked on previous occasions, you know, on the show, you know, I've been doing Phantom Hitchhikers for years. And uh, it, you get to a point where it's kind of a been there, done that situation until you encounter something new and exciting. And so, you know, doing this book was a, was a very refreshing change of pace. And... When you you know talking about the Phantom Hitchhiker stories, I'm sure that you get a lot of uh, kind of some degree of crossover, uh, both geographically and you know uh, mythology-wise in some of these stories. You know, it, it's the same idea of of the road of the of, of of travel of it being this lonely place where a lot of people are 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 coming and going, they're leaving loved ones, they're trying to return to loved ones. So there's a lot of those same type of themes that probably overlap. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and again, that's why it was such a refreshing change of pace for me to write this book. Um, I kind of shifted gears a little bit, but still followed along the same lines of, you know, where my research has led me over the years. And, you know, there's one story in particular, and the location escapes me, but there was a report of a woman in white on the tracks. And many engineers were reporting seeing this woman in white on the tracks. And... Eventually, 
a nearby house was renovated and the skeletal remains of a woman in a wedding gown were found in a chimney. Oh, wow. And those remains were given a proper church burial. And lo and behold, you know, in, in connection with this discovery and burial of these remains, she was still un- unidentified. Um, but in connection with that discovery and the burial of the remains, you know, the sightings of the woman in white on the tracks have stopped. It's very interesting and very creepy. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what's great, though, is when you can have stories that, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure, like you said, you know, you collect a lot of these stories over the years. That, I don't want to say that they get mundane, but, you know, sometimes they do. Sometimes it's like, oh, another story. Oh, yeah. You know, I've heard so, so, so many similar stories to that, that it kind of just makes your eyes glaze over. But when you can have something like that, that appeals to both the investigator side of you and the storyteller side of you, you know, you're getting the best of both worlds. Oh, yeah, Definitely. Now, what else? Uh, I mean, I know that you, the, the Phantom Hitchhiker is an ongoing uh, project for you, but is there anything that you're working on toward uh, future titles and future works? Um, nothing that I can talk about. You know, ah. 2014 saw the release of three books from me. So I was really busy last year. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so if you I, look at your Amazon I, page, yeah, you've, you've been, uh, been pretty busy. Yeah, I did my first children's book, uh, last year called No Monsters Here um, and I really wanted to with that book I wanted to empower children to take control of their surroundings and conquer their fears of the dark um, I also wanted to shine a positive light on investigators and what they do so the book in essence kind of explains to children what goes on during an investigation and really what what the possibilities could be when they are seeing things, you know, in their bedrooms. Uh, things from, you know, shadows to, you know, phantom noises and things like that. Uh, and at the back of the book, there's a certificate for the child that makes them a junior ghost and monster hunter, you know, further empowering them to, you know, take control of their surroundings and, and you know, kind of tell themselves, I got this. Oh, wait a minute. I thought you had to take a course for like $300 to get a certificate. <laughs> In the paranormal, no? <laughs> no, you just got to read a kid's book. Um, you know what? There's probably people out there that are running around calling themselves investigators that probably need to read a kid's book, at least yes. just to get started with <laughs> some sort of information to go I with. I agree with that. Yeah. And the people I would start with are the ones that send me the, the photographs of the dust going, you know, my house is haunted. Can you see all the orbs? Perfect. So... <laughs> Or the ones that send you the ghost app photos. Oh, my gosh. That that ghost radar is one of the biggest jokes I have ever seen in my life. It is so funny. I, and I see it when we do Legend Trips events. I see people pull it out, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, I just downloaded this. I'm so excited to use it for the first time. And and I just I feel so bad because it doesn't take very long before that look of disappointment comes over their face when they realize, oh, my God, this is total crap. Right. I don't feel bad. I get annoyed. And for the simple fact that when you've when you've got these these tours and you know and group gatherings, you know, nine times out of ten there's going to be someone there trying to conduct, you know, legitimate research. You know, they they've got their 
their audio recorder, they've got their millimeter or EMF detection device, you know, whatever they're using, you know, and they're trying really hard to gather something genuine. And you've got the people out there with ghost radar who are using their cell phones or their iPads or what have you, and, you know, that that piece of equipment right there is going to interfere with whatever EMF detection, you know, the, the legitimate researcher is trying to use. And, you know, then they, they get all excited because, you know, oh, my app said Apple. And so they're, they're constantly talking or their app is talking and it's bleeding over onto any audio evidence that, you know, that the researchers are trying to gather. And so I just, I get really frustrated, you know, with the people that, that use those apps. You know, if you want to do it, you know, fine, you know, do it in your living room as a parlor game or, you know, out in a cemetery by yourself, but, don't take them on the tours, you know, where there's people that are trying to try to do the real thing. Especially when the the common people, uh, they don't know the difference. You know, they they don't really know what is legitimate and what isn't. And you'll see a lot of times people will uh, just completely shut down any other type of investigation and focus solely on that stupid app in their hand. And and some of the apps are really good. There are apps out there that are being made by serious paranormal researchers uh, that are actually worthwhile and you know a lot of people don't realize that if you have a smartphone you can turn it into an emf detector that's Mm -hmm. pretty reliable by just going into the uh settings of your phone and you can actually find readouts for all the electromagnetic field that's around the phone but people would rather just have you know a, a, a ghost appear on the screen of their uh of their camera or they'd rather just have you know a little blip to show them where the ghost is and it, it's just a, well it's an instant gratification thing. Mm. You know, we as we as investigators, we would love instant gratification. You know, instead of spending hours on location and then going back and spending equal, if not double, triple, quadruple the hours going over, you know, whatever methods we were utilizing. And, you know, wouldn't that be a time saver if we had instant gratification? And I think that's what the, you know, the, the cheap apps, you know, do. They... They try to provide a false sense of instant gratification. Oh my gosh, I've got, I've got a blip on this radar, and so you know there is a ghost here. When in reality, you know it could be anything. You know it could just be the app throwing out a random blip on the radar. Um, you know the the newer apps, the ones that are being developed by investigators, um, I think they're on the right track. Um, but I don't think they're there yet. You know, there there have been a lot of great steps made in the right direction. Um, I just don't think they're quite there yet, simply because cell phones and smartphones were not designed for investigating. If the, if there was a cell phone that was designed with investigators in mind, you know, that would be fantastic, and I would easily fork out several hundred dollars for one. But... Um, you know, cell phones and smartphones were not designed as investigation equipment, and so that's why people are going out there and they're developing the apps and everything, trying to trying to work this out. You know, and find a happy medium. They're just not quite there yet. And you know, a lot of people who are developing those the apps that we consider to be jokes, I don't even think they realize that there's a, a community of people out there that are serious about. Paranormal investigation. I mean, I think they they just think they're having fun and, and creating something that's fun. 
Well, either that or they're laughing all the way to the bank. Either way. <laughs> either way. You know, they're, <laughs> what, they're going, ha suckers. <laughs> so, it, but uh, yeah, it is a little frustrating when people put their faith in the wrong things uh, when you have the right things right in front of them. I mean, with Legend Trips, we bring devices that people can use. Like, here, try this. Use this Melmeter. Use this EMF detector. Use this K2, whatever. And they're like, no, no, I got Ghost Radar. I'm good. Yeah, and it's, it's an instant gratification thing. And, you know, I will be the first to admit, I, I would love an instant gratification device. For paranormal research, you mean? I was going to say, in general, if something could figure out how to cook me dinner every night, I'd be happy with that. <laughs> well, I was thinking something else, you know. but that's because I'm well, that's perverted. You. We but, are on uh, podcast, so you can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, if there was a device that, you know, I could turn it on and it says the ghost is in that direction. You're getting warmer, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer. You're standing right in front of it. And, okay, the ghost says hello or the ghost says i think your face looks funny get out of my space you know something (laughs) something to that effect you know if there was some sort of you know instant gratification legitimate detection device not only would the developer you know die very wealthy you know but you know i i would buy it in a heartbeat because think of all of the all of the time and energy and frustration and gray hair we would save yeah, it's, it's like that, uh, I don't know, nobody's ever seen this Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, but in the last action hero, he's like, oh, all I have to do is drive around and point and say, the bad guys are in there. <laughs> and that's kind of like what it is in paranormal research. Just drive around and point and say, the ghosts are in there. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll yeah, keep and, working on a device like that. Any lay person, any lay person would be able to, would be able to investigate and, and those of us that are in it for the legitimate research and, and the, the scientific development of the field, you know, we'd all kind of be out of a job or out of a hobby. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Clarissa, for joining us. And uh, we look forward to some of those new titles that you have in the works that, that are pretty secretive. And, and definitely let us know when you come back up this way. I will do that. Thanks. We will not go in the Hoosier Tunnel together, though. Oh, come on. No, that would be dangerous and illegal and irresponsible. And I'll talk to you about it off the air when we can make plans. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Take care. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Well, Stephanie, we covered a lot of bases here on the show for being a podcast-only show. Uh, We talked about UFOs. We talked about ghosts. We talked about urban legends. So it's... Trains, everything. We kind of covered the the whole... It was a very eclectic show. I like it. I do, too. I think we should do this more often. I think that maybe uh, when we are released from the reins of being on the air and broadcasting it... It becomes a little bit more free-form and free-flowing. Right. And if we can take these chairs that we're sitting in with us, oh, so I'd be nice. so happy. Although I did start you know, standing up, but once I saw how comfortable you were in See, the chair, I, told I was you. like, i got to You have to try them out. And you know that you know WBSM is the only studio in this building where they don't have these chairs. That's not nice. All the production people have them, but we don't. Really? I think part of the problem is the counter is so low in there. Like, even on the lowest setting, we'd be too... Oh, nope, that's not true. Uh-oh. Going to raise myself back I up. I like the back support. I don't even care about the seat. The back support is fantastic. And they here, don't squeak. I've been sitting here for hours. I haven't even tried it. <laughs> anyway, I'll mess around with the chair later. We want to thank everybody for joining us. Next week, we also won't be on the air due to NFL football, but we will release another 
podcast-only edition of the show, and I'm liking this. we got to go with this in the future, because now that we know how to do this, we can come in and record shows Oh, this is fantastic. So you'll never miss a spooky show unless there's some type of crazy emergency. Right. Let's hope that never happens. Right. But, you know, we can never promise that. The technology in here, at least, is a lot more user-friendly for us. It, It definitely is. So. No technical difficulties. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. What I'm most impressed about this entire time we've been in here is they just have their phone lines are just solid lit up all the time. Really? With people calling to make requests. That's they funny. don't even know that we're in here right now doing this. Maybe we should take some. <laughs> I'm thinking that. I'm thinking maybe we should take some calls, but we'll save that for next week's show. Uh, so until then, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, for Stephanie Burke, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular.